welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and this episode goes out to all the arachnophobes out there. Yes, it's bites, stings, and envenomations, all the creepy crawlies that may attack you when you're out there enjoying your summer barbecue. This episode will review some of the creatures that threaten our summer fun and is brought to you by a special guest podcaster. Dr. Ben Greber is a pediatric resident at Boston Children's Hospital, Tufts Children's Hospital, and he came to me with this topic because he wanted to learn more about it, and I hope you will feel the same way. Take it away, Ben. Hello, and thank you, Dr. Soboleski, for allowing me to join this stinger of an episode. Today I'm going to cover a brief overview of some different types of stings and envenomations. We have a few insects to cover, so get out your fly swatter and here we go. To start out, let's look at the Hymenoptera stings. Yes, the bee sting. Almost everyone has been stung by one. Whether it was a hornet or a wasp from the Polistes fuscantis species, Bombus or a bumblebee, honeybees from the Apis genus, or a Vespula, the yellow jacket. All look a little different and sting in different patterns, but regardless, we all remember the pain they cause. Often, younger patients cannot identify the type of insects that stung them, but common differences, including size with bumblebees being notably fatter and fuzzier in appearance, wasps being skinny and long, and lastly, honeybees in between the two. Unfortunately, honeybees have one of the highest frequency of stings worldwide, according to the World Allergy Organization, and therefore cause the majority of anaphylactic reactions. But not all stings lead to anaphylaxis. The spectrum varies from non-immunoglobulin E-mediated reactions to venom-specific immunoglobulin E-mediated reactions. On the Hymenoptera spectrum of reaction, lowest is the non-immunoglobulin E-mediated reaction. They include smaller localized swelling, pain, and erythema. Without treatment, symptoms often resolve in a few hours to a few days. For symptomatic treatment, initial management includes removing the stinger. Many Hymoptera have barbed stingers that can get lodged in the skin, ripping away from the insect's body as it tries to fly away. Venom is released within the first few seconds, and definitely by two minutes, so despite some common misconceptions, pinching the venom sac a few minutes after initial sting will not introduce more venom. However, remaining stingers should still be removed to prevent foreign body reactions. In the first few seconds after a sting, the remaining stinger can be flicked off with a finger or credit card. By the time a patient reaches the emergency room, forceps should be used and are safe to do so. After a stinger is removed, consider mild analgesics, including acetaminophen and ibuprofen to help with swelling and tenderness. Antihistamines have been shown to reduce localized swelling. Consider ice and cool compresses. There's limited evidence for low-potency prednisone. You may also hear about other home remedies. To list a few, honey may increase wound healing, prevent infection, and introduce more healing oxygen to the wound. Baking soda and water can possibly neutralize bee venom, reducing swelling and inflammation. Toothpaste might neutralize the venom, given its alkaline properties. And lastly, apple cider vinegar might be used for its antimicrobacterial properties. On the contrary to non-immunoglobulin reactions, venom-specific immunoglobulin-E-mediated reactions are reactions to venom-specific IgE. For local reactions, look for greater than a 10 centimeter diameter area of induration, which can be mistaken for cellulitis. They can often occur 6 to 12 hours after sting and progressively increase in size over 48 hours. 
In systemic reactions, think anaphylaxis involving one or more organ systems. Symptoms can range from skin findings including pruritus, flushing, urticaria, and angioedema. GI symptoms include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Respiratory concerns include wheezing, strider, and shortness of breath. And from a cardiovascular standpoint, look for hypotension, syncope, and lastly, shock. In these cases, serum tryptase levels may be elevated. However, checking for one is not necessary if you know the offending insect. Importantly, the risk of systemic reactions increases with a history of multiple stings. So be on the lookout for patients with worsening reactions after second or third bee sting in their lifetime. When managing more severe reactions, always start with your ABCs. To classify anaphylaxis, we often look to the NIAID or FAAN diagnostic criteria. Diagnosis requires skin features plus one other symptom, or hypotension, bronchospasm, or airway obstruction without skin findings. In these cases, prompt intramuscular 1 to 1000 aqueous epinephrine is indicated. In children, give 0.01 milligram per kilogram per dose intramuscular every 5 to 15 minutes as needed, with a maximum dose of 0.3 milligrams. You can continue symptomatic management, as I described before, once the patient is stabilized, but evidence shows that antihistamines and corticosteroids do not help in survival. After successful treatment, there is varied recommendations for observation. In patients with milder anaphylaxis reactions, consider two to four hours of observation to monitor for delayed anaphylactic episodes, while more severe reactions might warrant longer six to eight hours of observation. In either case, these patients should be discharged with a prescription for an epinephrine autoinjector. Consider allergist referral for systemic reactions for possible venom immunotherapy in further allergen testing. Lastly, in the realm of hymoptera reactions, you might ask, how do I counsel patients to avoid bee stings? These recommendations are controversial and might differ from source to source, but overall, avoid eating outside, grilling, gardening, walking barefoot outside, stay away from trash cans, and avoid open beverages. Ineffective avoidance methods include avoiding bright colored clothing, avoiding fragrance, and using insect repellents. That was a lot of information on bee stings. Maybe, with this new information, it's less of a force to be reckoned with. I'm sorry, my bee puns aren't that great. I don't get what the buzz is all about. So let's spin on over to another type of envenomation, arachnids. Dust off those webs, there are a few insects to cover. I will discuss some signs of exposure, symptoms to look out for, and treatments for each. And I might even throw in another eight-legged critter to wrap this all up. For our first arachnid, let's discuss the Lactrodectus, or the black widow spider. Identified by a red or orange hourglass shape on their back, these dark brown or black spiders have actually not resulted in a death in the United States since 1983. Only the female spiders have fangs sufficient to penetrate skin. They are found among wood piles and prefer dark, dry places like barns, basements, eaves, and crevices. Sometimes they are found in gardening gloves and boots. Black widow spider venom lacks human cytotoxic agents, so there will likely be only minimal local injury or tenderness. Patients may present after a pinprick sensation with mild inflammatory response, including lymphadenopathy or a target or halo lesion. 
More notable is the systemic symptoms, also known as lactrodectism. The alpha lactrotoxin produced by black widows is a potent presynaptic neurotoxin, affecting the neuromuscular junction, leading to cation channel opening. This causes reduced acetylcholine reuptake and muscle cramping. Cramping presents in the legs, abdomen, back, and chest. The toxin can also cause autonomic nervous system dysfunction, leading to diaphoresis, nausea, vomiting, tachycardia, irritability, and priapism. Symptoms overall tend to persist for 36 to 72 hours. Be cautious, as the abdominal pain can be severe and can sometimes mimic appendicitis. To cheat lactodectrism symptoms, start with analgesics. Benzodiazepines can target central smooth muscles for relaxation and can also be used for anxiolysis. Retrospective studies negate the use of calcium gluconate. Support hydration, use cool compresses, and provide tetanus immunization if indicated by immunization review, as in any other tetanus exposure. In the rare case of severe hypotension, there is an antivenom available, albeit scarce in local availability. Importantly, this is a horse serum, so be mindful of horse serum hypersensitivity and anaphylaxis. Given this, there's currently trials in the U.S. looking at a highly purified equine FAB2 antibody preparation under the name Analitro that is commercially available in Mexico. Crawling right along, next let's discuss Laxalises, or the brown recluse spider. While found in southern United States, these spiders can also hitchhike in baggage or cargo and make their way up north. Bites often occur from April to October. After an initial bite, Early symptoms include erythema, pruritus, and edema within 2 to 8 hours. In the next 24 to 48 hours, a blue-gray halo begins to form that eventually becomes more vesicular in nature, occasionally with serous or hemorrhagic fluid. This lesion will progress over the course of 7 to 10 days with ischemia and necrosis into a black eschar. Eventually, the eschar sheds in 2 to 5 weeks, leaving behind an ulcer. Systemic manifications of brown recluse spider bites while less common, are termed laxalicism. They include fever, chills, malaise, and lymphadenopathy after 24 hours, with other symptoms including nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, a maculopapular rash, and hemolytic anemia, to name a few. The diagnosis of brown recluse spider bite can be difficult without a witnessed or observed bite, leading to a broad diagnosis and differential, including cutaneous anthrax. Unfortunately, there are no arachnid venom laboratory tests as confirmation. After ruling in a more definitive diagnosis, treatment is mostly symptomatic as an antivenom does not exist. Provide tetanus prophylaxis if indicated by vaccine records. Consider splinting, clean the wound if open, and apply cool compresses. Local symptoms do not require hospitalization. For more systemic reactions, Consider monitoring for signs of hemolysis and treat for any signs of cellulitis. Other therapies have not been heavily studied, but some data supports the use of corticosteroids, antibiotics, antihistamines, dapsone, and lastly, surgical excision. For the next arachnid, think fuzzy and brown and black, the tarantula, or the megalomorph. Found in tropical and subtropical desert areas of the southwestern U.S., these spiders are also common arachnid pets. Fortunately, most bites are no more severe than a bee sting. Patients can present with localized erythema, swelling, and pain. Occasionally, agitated tarantulas release and shoot their hair, which can embed in skin, leading to pruritus. If they end up in a patient's eyes, consider a thorough ophthalmologic exam, as the hairs can lead to chronic keratinitis and retinitis. For skin hairs, 
try using adhesive tape to effectively wax out the hairs, or saline solution to rinse the area. Treat with local wound care, antihistamines, or oral analgesics as needed. I hope arachnophobia has not kicked in yet and you're still listening, because we have one last arachnid to discuss. The bark scorpion, or the Centroides exilicata, is primarily found in the southwestern United States and is the most venomous scorpion in the U.S. Scorpions that are capable of injecting venom belong to the Boothidae family, with the deadliest scorpions actually living in North Africa and the Middle East. Envenomation is described as severely painful, with patients often describing the sensation of an electric shock. Interestingly, venom components are often found in aphrodisiac formulations in the United States. That being said, bark scorpion envenomation can lead to adrenergic and parasympathetic activation. The potent neurotoxin activates neuronal sodium channels in systemic reactions, leading to symptoms within 60 minutes. Neurologically, patients may present with uncontrolled jerking movements of the extremities, peripheral muscle fasciculation, tongue fasciculation, facial twitching, and rapid disconjugate eye movements. They may also describe temporary dysfunction of the affected extremity, such as an arm or hand immobilization if stung in that region. The adrenergic and parasympathetic surge can result in agitation, extreme tachycardia, hypertension, salivation, and respiratory distress. Lastly, venom can cause nonspecific ST changes, ST elevation, or even ST depression. When diagnosing an envenomation, a definitive history of scorpion sting is most useful, as the differential diagnosis includes seizures, phenothiazine, or organophosphate poisoning, to name a few. Initial management should include the ABCs. For mild symptoms, consider supportive cold compresses, tetanus prophylaxis if applicable based on vaccine records, and analgesics. For more severe reactions, benzodiazepines are appropriate for seizures and narcotic analgesics for pain. There is no clear studied cardiac therapy, but calcium channel blockers can assist with hypertension as well as alternative afterload reducers. Atropine will improve hypersecretion, but should be used with caution. Antivenom became available in 2011 and should be reserved for persistent signs of severe envenomation or neurotoxicity. Anscorp Centroides Immune Fab 2 equine injection is available in many regional trauma centers around bark scorpion habitats. Treatment requires three vials reconstituted in 5 mLs of sterile normal saline combined and then diluted further to a total of 50 mLs infused over 10 minutes. Antivenom can be repeated a second time if necessary. Counseling to prevent further envenomation should include telling patients to avoid areas where scorpions conjugate and physical barriers such as elevated door thresholds. Wow, that was a lot to crawl through. I hope this overview offered some insight into common envenomations and stings seen in the emergency department, urgent care clinics, and primary care offices. It was a pleasure preparing this information, and thank you for listening. That's all for this episode on stings and envenomations. Thank you to Dr. Ben Greber, who did a fantastic job putting together this content. I did not write his dad jokes or puns. He delivered them on his own, so all groans and eye rolls should be flown right in his direction. If you are an aspiring podcaster and you want to learn the entire process from idea generation all the way through production and publishing, reach out to me. Of course, the topic has to be relevant to pediatric emergency medicine. If you've got feedback on this episode or the show in general, shoot me an email, direct message on Twitter, a post on social media, a review on your favorite podcast site, a certified letter, 
any and all feedback is welcome. Encourage your colleagues to listen to the show and subscribe. And stay safe out there. Oh, uh, and if you know why I chose the song for this episode, then you went to high school in the 1990s and watched a lot of MTV like I did. If not, well, I don't know, just Google B-Girl video. You'll find it. For Pem Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.